Good morning again. It's great to be able to open up the Word with you this morning as we uh, continue our way through our series as we are going through the Gospel of Mark, a series we've entitled Follow the King. Now what we've seen the, the, the past few weeks or this past little bit in Mark is the pressure on Jesus is increasing. Uh, it's like he's being squeezed around him. I, I mentioned last week as we finished up last two stories of a series of five conflict stories um, where Jesus is in conflict with, with, with somebody. Somebody has and taken issue um, with him. And these stories escalated things all the way to the point, as we saw last week in, in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out. And immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That's, that's the degree to which this pressure has been increased. And now we've got to ask, where are we going to go from here? Let's see. Let's look, starting at verse 7, Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great, cloud, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard of all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those who he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter James, the son of Zebedee, and John, uh, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagerus, that is, sons of thunder, thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that is before us this morning. Would you cause it to come alive before us this morning? Would we, this morning, through your word, be drawn to our Savior? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we, we live in a, a day, a, a period of time right now of in, incredible pressures, don't we? Strange, weird pressures that many of us have never seen. I mean, since March, this whole COVID-19 thing and the, the pressures that is added to many of our lives and families, um, whether it was is being trapped in the house for so long at the beginning of this, the, the continued issues with schooling and uh, just all of these things have in, increased dramatically the pressures on us. And you add to that recent things that we've experienced uh, as, as people here in the United States of the, the civil unrest, particularly over the summer, over, over, racial, um, over racial issues, uh, as we think even of the election next week. It's like there's all of these pressures coming in uh, upon us, right? 
So much so that the Census Bureau, since the beginning of this COVID thing, is, has done regular surveys, emergency surveys, to see kind of how the nation is doing. And, and increasingly, and from the beginning, it's kind of stabilized as the same. There's been an incredible increase of, of people reporting great anxiety and depression, much more than was so in February. It suddenly ramped up, and we, we probably shouldn't be too surprised by it, in fact, as, as we experience all these incredible pressures. Now, as we've seen, and as we mentioned, Jesus has been experiencing some incredible pressures as he has these people coming at him. And so now we see, how does Jesus respond? Where does he go? Verse 7, what does Jesus do? He withdraws. He withdraws. He, he senses the opposition that is against him, Right? And he seeks to kind of get away from it. But what happens? A great crowd followed him. He, he tries to get away. He tries to escape these pressures in a way. And, and the great crowd follows him. And we have this list of, uh, of regions and stuff. We're, we're not going to do a geography lesson uh, right now. But, but basically, people are coming from everywhere. And certainly from everywhere in Israel. From, from everywhere that those 12 tribes originally settled. People are coming out from all of those distant parts. Why? Verse 8. They've heard all that he was doing. They've, they've heard everything that he was, he was doing, and this isn't a day with, without the internet, a day without radio and TV, and yet word has spread. The, the word has spread, and they've come out to be healed to see the wonders. You know, there, there's many of these people that are coming to him. You know, the doctors have, have tried, of their day have tried to treat him and they, there's no hope for them. And they come to see Jesus. They're, they're not coming out though because they have faith that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised one. They don't understand who he really is. They come out with the hope of healing. Verse 10, for he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. All these crowds, they come out, they're excited to see him, but they've totally missed him. Much as we saw the Pharisees missed him last week. These crowds, these, if you will, Jesus' fans have gathered, and they totally miss who he really is. Verse 9, what does he tell his disciples? He says, he tells them to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. He tells his disciples, we need to get together an escape plan. This is getting difficult. This is how much pressure Jesus is feeling. Now he's physically feeling pressured to the point of potentially being crushed. Many of you have probably been in, in Times Square at night. Not now, I guess, but, but back in the day in Times Square at night, and you're like walking through, and you can barely move, and you know, if you're walking with somebody, you know, like your hand's behind you, try, you know, they're trying to hang together, trying to just make it through the crowd, as they're, you know, it's just this like suffocating pressure around you, and that doesn't even, I think, quite come close to the pressure that Jesus is feeling, as, as these crowds are, are suffocating him, maybe a little bit more akin to Black Friday, which I guess we won't have again this year, but, but Black Friday, where people are literally pressured to the point of being trampled sometimes. Jesus, um, Jesus is being pressured in this way. Last week, we learned that these Pharisees are, are seeking to kill him. And this week, his fans have all come out, and they're about to crush him to death. 
I mean, do, do, do you see that this, what's going on here? Even his fans, those who are for him, even the ones who are enamored with him, are threatening him. Maybe not intentionally, but they are. They've come out to see, you know, this incredible sight. Now, this wasn't Jesus' intention to come out and just gather these huge groups of people to have this incredible popularity fest. That wasn't what he was, he was there for. He, he came to bring redemption to this world, right? And these miracles are just kind of a byproduct of that redemption. They're showing forth this redemption that he intends to bring. They are meant to pave the way for the people to begin to understand why he has really come as the Messiah. That he has come ultimately to suffer so that people might be saved. He's, he's come to go all the way to the cross, but nobody can even begin to grasp that at this moment. So he feels pressure from, from those who are really into him, who are enamored with him, but he also has another pressure. Verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. <laughs> Here you have, you know, he sought to withdraw. The crowds have been pressuring him. Now the demonic spirits are pressuring him. He's sought to withdraw, and it's just coming from, from every angle. And you almost wonder as you hear the cry of the demon, you know, you are the Son of God, do the demons get it? Um, and we'll talk about in a way they do, but if you were the people watching in that day, you would have thought that there was something else going on. You would have thought that actually what they were trying to do was to control Jesus. There was this thought in that day that if you could pronounce the name of somebody and who they were, that you gained some sense of control over them. And no doubt here we have like a, a dying gasp, if you will, of the demonic powers trying to take control of this situation. Yet there's a great irony here, isn't there? That the only ones who, who seem to know what's really going on, to seem to know who it is that's really right there in front of them is the demonic spirits. So far, we've seen that nobody understands him. Now, we have a few teenagers this morning, and many of us used to be teenagers, and, and maybe we've at some point or another said, nobody understands me. Nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. My parents don't understand me, whatever it is. And here we have Jesus, the God-man, and nobody understands him. Nobody gets it. Not his disciples, not the Pharisees, not the crowds. And yet the irony of all ironies here, that, that the demons are the ones who are, in a sense, confessing who he is. And, and he tells them in verse 12 not to make him, no, him known. He doesn't want them to be his mouthpiece, right? They will likely do what Satan did in the garden, try to twist the truth in some way or another. And he also knows that his time hasn't yet come for everybody to know the fullness of, of who he is. Now, as we think about Jesus being pressured, I want us to be careful because sometimes, okay, Jesus here is being pressured, but come on, he's God, right? He can handle the pressure. Yes, he is fully God. But let's never just dismiss something like the pressure that Jesus was feeling because he was God. Because as we know, he is also fully man. Fully man, not like part man, but, but fully 
man, and we can never deny that by saying, yeah, but he's God. You see, yes, he was fully God, but he's also fully man. And in his humanity, in his being fully man, he was totally relying on Holy Spirit every moment of the way as you and I are called to do. Don't think he was walking somehow in in some different way. He feels the pressure. Don't miss the beauty of the story that Mark here is is trying to paint to us. As you read the, the book of Mark, and we talked about just the rapid nature of the book of Mark. It goes from one thing to the next to the next, and, and, and we could almost begin to think that Mark just threw a bunch of stories up on the wall and just saw whatever order they stuck in, and, and let's go with it, but no. We can see here as we look at the bigger picture, the pressure on Jesus. It's, it's just building. It's building from these people coming in from without, then even the crowds who are enamored with him. It's coming from every single direction. Mark here is telling us an incredible story, the, the incredibly true story of Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah who, who, who came to earth to save the people who, who are surrounding him. And he's completely misunderstood by everybody. That nobody gets it. Nobody recognizes him for who he is. Now, how is Jesus going to handle this pressure? How do you and I handle pressure whenever the pressure's turned up? Um, just this past week, Adrian had asked me to make chili, which I enjoy doing. I enjoy cooking. So it wasn't that, that's not necessarily a big deal, but it was kind of last minute. And, and I was going to make the chili in the Instant Pot. Do you know what that is? Electronic Um, pressure cooker, right? This modern, this incredible modern device, right? But there's a problem, at least with mine. Some of the older ones, I don't think do this, but it's a newer one. And so anytime that stuff gets on the bottom, it burns. And then the burn notice comes on the thing. It tries to be smart enough to turn itself off whenever there's some stuff on the bottom. And with chili, what happens? You got a lot of stuff in there and it inevitably starts burning on the bottom. I don't really care. Just get up to pressure and cook the thing. And this burn notice on Thursday kept going off. And then what do you got to do? You got to press the button and and the pressure releases. You open it up, you scrape it, get it all off the bottom. And and then it happens again. And then it happened again. And then it was at that point that I realized, hey, I was planning on us eating at 5.30, but actually Grayson and I have to leave at 5.30. So I don't have time for this. What's going on? So I try it again and again, the burn notice. And then that's whenever I remember. The last time I made this, I promised myself I was never going to do this again. And I'd completely forgotten. The recipe's fine, but it just needs to be put in the slow cooker or a pot all day or something. Never do it in the pressure cooker again because it's so frustrating because you keep getting that burn notice and the pressure was, was building up. And how did I respond? Perfectly and like an angel, of course. <laughs> my, my family was completely unaware of my frustrations. Don't believe that for a moment. Don't believe it for a moment. They all knew. Jesus, as we approach him this morning, he is is well acquainted with the pressures of this life, okay? Pressures far beyond trying to make chili in an instant pot, understand. He, He knows the pressure. He knows what it's like to be in the midst of conflict. And we have a Savior who is sympathetic with us. He's been in our shoes, okay? And so what is his response? Look at verse 13. He went up on the mountain. On the mountain. Now, throughout Scripture, important things happen on mountains, don't they? We won't go through a litany of the list right now, but 
things like the Ten Commandments take place on the mountain. Jesus is ultimately going to go to the cross. Where? On a mountain. Important things take place on mountains. And to understand the full context of what's going on, I think we need to actually flip over to Luke's account very quickly. Just to understand what took place when he went up on that mountain. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Okay, so what is Jesus' response? All this pressure is building around him. And his first response is to retreat and to spend an entire night in prayer. He must have been exhausted. But we see where he retreats to. He retreats to conversation with his father. Jesus knew his desperate need to go to his father. His desperate need for the ministry and the work of Holy Spirit in his life. And it's only after he spends that night in prayer that then he takes the next steps that we're going to see in a moment. We can learn a lot from Jesus' response, can't we? And I hope you do. This is the way that he regularly responds to the pressures of life upon him. Does his response characterize your response When you experience pressures, do you respond as Jesus did? Now, I'm not talking about necessarily spending all night in prayer, okay? Not that that would be a bad thing, I guess, but as you experience pressures, are you just self-reliant? Do you just rely on yourself to get through the pressures? Or do you run to your Father? Do you you run to your Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you seek out the ministry of Holy Spirit in your life at that moment amidst the pressures? I think all too often our response to pressures is just self-reliance instead of reliance on our Savior. And so we can learn greatly from Jesus in the midst of this. And so after he goes to prayer, verse 14, what does he do? He appointed twelve. This is his response. He appoints 12. Now that word appointed is important for us a moment because it doesn't quite pull out what it, what's really behind it. Okay? The word there literally means to, to make or to create. Like the same kind of language that's used in Genesis 1. That kind of creating. And, and, and so that takes on a very different flavor as Jesus, if you will, creates. He makes his disciples, his apostles. Okay? Back in that day, there were many teachers who had disciples who would follow them. Okay? This wasn't an unusual thing in that respect. But the disciples chose their master. They chose who they were going to follow. Something completely opposite is taking place here. Jesus chooses those who are going to be his followers. It is he who makes them his disciples. He makes them into, he he creates them into precisely what he wants them to be, in a sense. It is he who's going to make them into who they need to become. Okay, And the numbering here, 12, he calls 12, that's very 
um, that's very intentional, as we can imagine. We're reminded of, of the 12 tribes, right? Um, just as there were 12 tribes, there are 12 apostles. And they represent, in a way, the, the, a, a new, in a new formation, God's people. And they're going to be used to call all believers. They are going to be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 The church is built on what? On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Himself being the cornerstone. And then when you, you get to the very end, in that new Jerusalem, in that new city, on the new heavens and new earth, what are the foundations of that city? Revelation 21.14 And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. They are to be the foundation of God's church, of Jesus' church, of what He is building. And so what does He do with these apostles that He calls? Back to verse 14. He calls them to what? So that they might be with Him. Don't skip by that quickly. This is an important component, just as important as to what comes after that he's going to send them to preach and cast out demons. Just as importantly, or actually important beforehand, if you will, is that they be with him. Discipleship first requires that they be with the disciple maker. They have to be with the disciple maker. They have to be with Jesus it requires relationship first. Okay? And that's going to become evident as they move in, into the future later on after Jesus is ascended. John and Peter are called to the carpet and, and the leaders are astonished at John and Peter. You may remember this, Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And then they recognized something. They recognized something incredibly important, didn't they? That they had been with Jesus. They had been with Him. Because they had been with Him, that's what made them different. It was their relationship with their disciple maker. Now, it, from here, where Jesus calls them to this, it's going to take some time, right? Right? They're not going to immediately be able to do what they do in Acts chapter 4. It's going to, in fact, take some time, even after Jesus' death, even after His resurrection, for them to fully get it and to fully be prepared to be the foundations of the church. But Jesus here, He gathers together this group, this group of unlikely men. And He calls them to be the foundation of His church. Now, as we see the way that Jesus calls them to, to be with him, I think we learn something maybe for ourselves too. Like the disciples, the way in which you're going to grow, the way in which you are going to mature is by being with him. I'm often, I wouldn't say astonished because I kind of ask the same question as people come or at some point, you know, how do I grow? How do I mature in the faith? I feel like I'm the same as I was last year. And my question will always be, well, are you with Him? Are you spending time with Him? 
You see, there's no magic pill to, to give out to anybody to make you mature in the faith and to grow as a disciple. You grow as a disciple as you are with Him. As you spend time with Him in His Word, as you spend time with Him in prayer, as you spend time with Him in community, as we're doing this morning as the church. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. We grow in relationship. It starts with relationship. We must be with Him. Now because they were with Him, because they had been with Him, they were able to be, back to verse 14, He was able to send them out. He was able to send them out to be apostles, right? The sent out ones. To to go and to to preach and to cast out demons. Because they've been with Him, they're able to begin to be on mission with Him and to do the mission that He has before them. The mission to continue the ministry that He's starting. And we'll see them begin to take it up as we go through the book of Mark, but they're not going to quite get it and not quite be there until we start getting into the book of Acts. That we begin to see them totally transformed and on, on mission with Jesus as they become who Jesus has created them to be. Okay, He's creating them to be the foundations of His church the ones to take his, his mission out. You know, the expectations in that day for the Messiah. You know, everybody was waiting for the Messiah. The Jewish people, they were waiting for the Messiah. But a lot, most of their expectations were largely political, okay? They were largely nationalistic. They were hoping somehow they bring the nation of Israel back together, that they would be able to rule themselves again, right? We, we've, we've all heard that. What they were hoping for, in a way, is that this Messiah would come in and stage a revolt, that he would be a revolutionary, right? They'd build an army and be a revolutionary. Well, that's not the path of the Messiah. That wasn't the promised path. The promised path was one of, of suffering on his way to doing that, if you will. But let's not miss that what Jesus is doing here, well, it might, you know, we've heard it over and over, the calling of 12 disciples, what he's doing is revolutionary. Okay? What he's doing is revolutionary. They were hoping that he was going to form some sort of army to, to take over the Romans and kick them out, right? Don't mistake that what he is doing here is, in a way, forming an army. Okay? But an army unlike any that the world has ever seen. An army that's going to wage war in a very different way, kind of like Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's a war, (laughs) For human souls. A battle against sin and death itself. This group that Jesus calls by his authority and through the power and the work of Holy Spirit in their lives change this world. And the world, the work that they started 
back then, laying the foundations, continues to change our world today. Don't miss it. Don't be distracted by the news. Don't for a moment buy the lie that somehow Jesus is losing the battle. That somehow the success of his mission depends on an election next week. Nothing could be farther from the truth. His kingdom has never been bigger than it is right now at this moment and it's going to continue to expand until he returns. You and I, we're, we're here right now because of the mission that he sent those apostles on. That mission to lay the foundations of the church. Because here you, you, you have these 12, they were sent on mission. They laid the foundation. And, and we now, as the church, are called to continue that mission. That mission of taking the good news of our Savior to our lost and dying world. So that more and more might be brought in. That's the real battle that's the real battle that we as believers need to be focused on. Not the battles that this war, this world rages. Not that we should just ignore them. But they should not be our primary concern. They should not be the things that move our hearts. We should be consumed with the mission that God started with His apostles and now continues through his church, of taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. You know, I wish this morning we had time to talk about all 12 of these men, right? Now, part of the problem, though, if we did, is some of these men we don't really know much about. All that we know is kind of legend. Um, but what we seem to know for sure is that 10 of these 12 men are going to give their life for the gospel. That they are going to be martyred. Building the foundation of our church as they take the gospel literally kind of to the, to the four corners in a sense of the known world at that time as they go out in different directions taking the gospel and they end up dying for it. Of course, John ends up being exiled to the island of Patmos and dies at a, a very old age. But the other ten are martyred. Now, of course, we have another one remaining, Judas. We'll talk about him in a second. But, but here, Jesus' response to all of this pressure is to go to his Father and then to solidify his followers and begin to lay the foundations of the church to continue his mission, knowing that he won't be with them forever. Now, now, you would think that this is now a moment to celebrate, right? We now have the 12 apostles. It's time to throw a party. Mark's going to give us a bit of relief, right? Let us, let, let, you know, Jesus just needs to have a few moments to, okay, now we can rest and we can relax. He now has the apostles, but... Let's look a little more closely. Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. One of his own. One who he had called and chose. The one trusted 
to handle money turns away from him. And so that, that pressure, we see it already, it's a rebuilding. It's like there's no moment. And we're reminded here of a very important point. That you can be as close to Jesus as Judas was and still miss him. Still not see him for who he really is. Still not truly confess him as Lord. But, and it would be enough if it just entered with, okay, one of his followers. But do you see how the passage continues and our passage ends? Verse 20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again. He, he can't get away from him. So much so that he couldn't even, they couldn't even eat. Okay, before they were like crushing him bodily. Now the picture is the crowd's regained and now they're starving him. The pressure continues. It doesn't let up for Jesus. And if that's not enough, verse 21. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him. Now, I don't know how many of you, it's been a long time, probably a dozen years or more. I don't even know if this show's still on TV, but there was a show on called Intervention, you know, where uh, families and friends would gather together um, to intervene in somebody's life. Maybe they were a drug addict, drug addict whatever was going on. And, and what, what would happen is they'd be in a room, you know, the friends and family, and then suddenly that individual is somehow or another brought into that room, and suddenly everybody's, you know, and, and the person's astonished at what's going on, and they confront them, Right? And there's this huge intervention. That's kind of what Jesus' family tries to do right here. They plan an intervention. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The pressures upon Jesus, the opposition to him even, they're coming from every single direction. Okay? Even those closest to him even his very own family. And yet, we see Jesus not even relying on himself, but relying and going and running to his Father, as we saw him do as he went up on the mountaintop. Not relying on himself, as you and I so often do as these pressures mount against us. We try to pull our own selves up by our bootstraps. We try to make life work through our own power and strength. And Jesus teaches us something incredible. He knows, he knows pressures far beyond that which we will ever know. And we see where he goes and who he relies on. We too need to learn to run to the Father amidst the pressures of this life. And as we conclude, we should see, and I hope we understand, that Jesus, in the midst of all of this pressure, that we see what he's doing. Amidst these people trying to kill him, amidst these people unintentionally almost crushing him, what does he continue to do? He continues steadfastly on the path set out before him. He's not going to be dissuaded for a moment. He continues his journey to the cross. He takes, in our passage this morning, the next step on the way there, which is appointing the twelve. 
creating them, creating his apostles, who are going to be the foundations of the church, beginning to prepare them for the mission that he has before them, the mission to tell others about the one that they had been with, who at first they didn't really understand who he was, but finally they come and they understand that he is the promised one, that he is the Messiah, the long-hoped-for one, who would bring healing to this broken world, but not healing like we see in these great miracles that he's doing, but an even greater healing. That is, healing this world of sin and death so that all who believe in him might be saved. Do you hear the call this morning, I hope, of the great disciple maker? Do you hear the call of Jesus calling you to be with him amongst all the pressures of this life and grow in him and be on mission with him? Do you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this incredible picture of the way that you formed the apostles of your church further in your mission. We thank you for the way in which you even show us where to go amidst the pressures of this life. And so we come to you this morning admitting that we are so often so self-reliant and that so often we do not rely on you. Would you help to change that? Would you help to eliminate the pride in our hearts thinking somehow we can do this life on our own or somehow we know better? Help us to again run to the foot of your cross knowing that we need you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.